Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be together, and I, for one, cannot wait for December 6th for that concert. Uh, it is just going to be an expression of love and oneness in the gospel that is uh, going to be unique. It's going to be, uh, well, it's just one of those moments we say, this is, this is the hand of God. This is what God does. Uh, You'll want to set that, that uh, evening aside uh, for special worship, special fellowship in, in the gospel. And you'll want to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We are moving right along. Ephesians chapter 2. For those who are uh, new to us this morning, we are doing a series through the book of Ephesians entitled Simply In what it means to be in Christ, in union with Christ, in relationship with Christ. Uh, the book of Ephesians uh, declares to us this doctrine of union with Christ in ways that are wonderful. And we come now to chapter 2 and verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we turn to you now to ask for your blessing through the ministry of your spirit among us, and through the ministry of your word. Father, teach us wonderful things from your word. Teach us things we need to know. Teach us things that will fill us with joy and hope and a passion for holiness and godliness and communion with you. And Father, as I pray for the ministry of your word here, I, I do want to pray for uh, Beulah Tabernacle this morning. I pray as the word is ministered among our brothers and sisters that there would be a powerful outpouring of your spirit through the word. Father, that your people will come to know you more deeply and love you more dearly. Father, I, I think of our sister church in West Philly, Covenant Community Church in our dear brother Andrew Cavillage, and I pray for, for them that this morning as the word is preached, as the people of God gather there, there will be power that falls. 
Lives will be changed and people will be converted. People will, for the first time, find themselves in Jesus by faith. Lord, wherever your word is preached across this world, may it be attended by the Spirit and power. And may it run freely and may your gospel prove itself unstoppable in this generation on this day in this world, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to call this message, From Dust to Glory to Dust to Glory, which is, in fact, in just a few words, the summary of the history of the human race. We were made from the dust and made for glory, made in the image of God, made to have dominion over the earth, made to be in relationship and fellowship with God. But then, due to sin, we descended from glory back to the dust, back to death, back to depravity. And then, now in Christ, we are destined to return to glory, to return to all that God intended for us in the first place. This is God's design for His people. From dust to glory, to dust, to glory. Now, as we, as we think about this and as we think about human beings, I, I imagine that you're like me in this way, that it is very easy at times to, to forget that we human beings are, in fact, glorious. I mean, look in the mirror. This is, this is, this is not an easy thing to perceive. This is not an easy thing to, to grasp, that that we as human beings are of all creatures the most glorious and the most majestic. The, the truth is, is that there's so much junk in our lives. There's so much mess in our lives. There's so much darkness and depravity in our lives that we can forget that for which we were made. We can forget the one in whose glory we were created. And, and sometimes we need to be reminded of that glory. And, and one of the things that has helped me from time to time to be reawakened to the majesty of man is to read about and think about people who have unique gifts and unique abilities. Child prodigies, for example. These are, these are young children whose capacity is absolutely astonishing. There's, there's a young boy named John who, as a six-year-old, is called a human calculator. He is able to calculate complex problems in his head, and even better than that, he's able to tell jokes in classical Greek, which impresses only himself, but he can do it. <laughs> he can do it. Zara is a nine year old who can multiply six digit numbers in his head. As a four year old, Mozart could play complex musical pieces from memory as a four year old and do it, it is said, so faultlessly and with such delicacy and skill that you could feel the music. Adam is a three-year-old, three-year-old who can read, write, speak several languages, and compose music. Jay received a full scholarship from Juilliard when he was 10 years old. 
And by the time he was 12, he had composed five full-length symphonies. He says, music just fills my head and I have to write it down to get it out. And often, he has more than one composition going on in his head at the same time. Now, what are we to make of this? Or what are we to make of the woman who was able to multiply two random 13-digit numbers in her head in less than 30 seconds, taking half of that time to give the answer. So those are trillions, folks. So it's like 6 trillion... 942,368,476,351 times 8,942,646,532,201 equals and give you the answer in less in actually about 15 seconds. What do, we, what do we do with this? Or what do we do with the reports that are coming out recently of, of human beings who have memories that are so exact and so complete that they can remember everything that has ever happened in their life? Every day, every circumstance, just name a date, they'll tell you what happened, where they were, what, what the weather was, what happened at 10 o'clock, what happened at 3 o'clock. Seeing the reports, it's just mind-blowing. What, what do we do with these? Are, are, are these people for whom there, there's something profoundly wrong? Or are these folks in whom something is profoundly right? Are they human beings who are made in such a way that they demonstrate the capacity, the majesty of man? Are they examples of what would happen for all of us if everything was working the way it should? Are they examples, a little whisper of an example of Adam and Eve? What must they have been like? Made in the image of God without sin or weakness or deficiency. And in those two was present and latent all the beauty and artistry and skill and intelligence and majesty and authority and morality and decency and goodness of the whole human race. What must they have been like, planted as they were in the middle of paradise? That's how the story begins, folks. Genesis 1 and 2, that's how the story begins. From dust to glory. And that's what we would be experiencing today were it not that sin and rebellion entered into the world. But sin and rebellion did enter into the world. And the result of that is a mess. Sin has so marred us and defaced the image of God in us that very rarely do we see the majesty of man. And when we do, we see it only barely. We don't see it nearly as clearly as it was intended. And we need to understand that the gospel, the good news, is a message that announces that God has redeemed us to bring us back to the glory 
that He made us to enjoy. The gospel is God taking us from dust to glory. He is this, it's the ultimate rags to riches story. It is God breaking into our lives and doing a miraculous work in our souls. Breathing His life into us. That's what Ephesians 2 is about. Breathing His life into us so that while we were dead, we are dead no longer. And while we were depraved, we are being transformed as His creation and His workmanship. This this is what Ephesians 2 is about. We're going to hear it this week and next. And if I were to try to summarize it, I would summarize it like this. To live well, we need to know that and how and why and where we are alive. To live well, we need to know that we are alive. He has made us alive. We need to know how we are alive. By the mighty power of God that raised up Jesus from the dead. We need to know why we are alive. Because of His great love with which He loved us. We need to know where we are alive. In Christ, in the heavenly places. In order to live well, which is the point of this whole text, down in verse 10, we are His workmanship created for good works. In order to live well and do good and live life the way we're supposed to, we need to know that and how and why and where we are alive. And so, let's see what Paul says to us here. We're going to, this morning, just give three simple points. The desperate need for our new life, the divine motive behind that new life, and the present glory of our new life. Next week, Alex is going to complete this. Who, by the way, side note, uh, was chosen this week to be a board member of the Amnion Crisis Pregnancy Center, uh, for which we are thankful because it Uh, is a wonderful community ministry and service, and it's just great to be represented on the board. Uh, Proud of, thankful for Alex and and what he is. Yes, that's right. That's right. And he, Alex, will be giving part two of this message next week to bring us to that place where the goal of all of this is for the glory of God. Let's think about it. Let's think first of all our desperate need for this new life. Verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here in this text, we are told about our condition B.C., before Christ, before God's work of regeneration in in our life. And, And we need to be forewarned as we begin to look at this. The diagnosis is not pretty. This is ugly. This is a bleak and dark picture of the human condition. Now, you need to keep in mind Paul's purpose. Paul is not just 
out to make us look bad as human beings. He has a purpose here. He, he is setting up, through verses 1 through 3, he is setting up a contrast between what we once were and what we now are. Verses 1 through 3 is something of a backdrop against which the glory and the beauty of the gospel are going to shine. Like when our designers here decorated back here, they put up a black curtain here. And the reason for the black curtain is to provide a backdrop against which the logo could stand and and shine and be seen. Verses 1 through 3 are the backdrop. You need to know this. If you're going to appreciate who you are and what you have and what God is making you in Christ, you need to know this background. You need to have this backdrop. Paul paints a dark picture so that when we get to the gospel, the light just bursts on the gospel. It explodes with glory, explodes with wonder and amazement. So let's set the backdrop up carefully. First, Paul says we were dead in sin. Very simply, verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in, one, in which you once walked. That's a kind of all-encompassing word. The word dead means dead, not mostly dead. But dead, not just sick or ill or a little bit under the weather. This isn't the head cold that we have. This isn't the hangnail that we have. This is death. This means in the words that he writes later on, we're alienated from the life of God. There is nothing alive in a human being before God does a work of grace in his or her life. Dead in sin. Next, Paul says, we were duped by the world. Verse 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Following the course of this world. What is Paul saying? He is saying that that we, we follow the crowd. Human beings, I say they're duped because... Well, they think they're free-thinking, free-spirited, making their own choices, creatures, when in fact, all they are really doing is being led by the nose by a world that is godless. There's a kind of collective, mob, world-fixated spirit that has no love for God, that has no love for holiness, and it just pulls us along. It just, we follow it. We, we think we're independent. We think we're making our own choices, but we're just puppets. We, we just are. Just are. I remember reading years ago, back when Madonna was huge, um, there were millions of teenagers and 20-somethings going to her concerts, and, and many, many, many of them would dress exactly like Madonna. And I remember reading one interview with a young girl dressed from head to toe like Madonna who was asked, why are you dressed this way? To which she replied, I like to express my own individuality. (laughs) But let's not patronize the young. It's true of all of us. Every one of us, we dress the way we dress. We drive what we drive. We live where we live. We 
We do our hair the way we do our hair. Or we don't have any hair. Because somebody else doesn't have any hair. I don't know. We do, we do it because somebody is doing it. We are following the course of this world. Now, often that's innocent. Like, you know, plaids. Plaids are in now, right? Or at least they were. Are they out now? Somebody chuckled. Are they, are they out already? I'm just here to tell you, I was doing plaids long before any of you were doing plaids. <laughs> I've been doing plaids my whole life. I am a fashion trendsetter here. I am out in front. And everyone's just catching up now. The reality is, though, that back when I was a teenager somewhere, I saw someone wearing a plaid shirt, and I said, that looks pretty cool. I've been wearing them ever since. Because we, we follow the course of this world. Humans are duped into thinking that we're living our own life. All the while being nothing but puppets of the world whose strings are manipulated by others. Paul goes on. He says, we've been demonized. We were demonized by hell. Verse 2. We were following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Before our new life in Christ, we were all demonized, if you will. Will We were led along by Satan and demonic forces of hell. Satan has been permitted massive influence in this world over the sons of disobedience, over unbelievers. They are under his control, whether they realize it or not. They are being, they are being coerced and seduced and enticed and controlled and dominated and ruined and destroyed by Satan and and don't even know it. That's where we were. That's where we were. Paul says next that we were disobedient by choice and by nature. Notice verse 2. He says he calls us before Christ, before conversion, sons of disobedience. That means we were sinful by choice. We disobeyed. We, we chose to, to live in active rebellion against the law of God. We chose to, to live in cosmic treason against the Lord of the universe. We were disobedient. You know it, right? You lived it, right? But it doesn't just say that, that we were disobedient. It says we were sons of disobedience. That's, a, that's an old Hebrew way of saying that it was our nature to obey, disobey. We were, we were, disobedience was our father and mother. Or it was in our DNA to disobey. You know, fish swim and dogs bark and birds fly and humans disobey. By nature, disobedient. It's often been said and and to, to hear these words and to really process them is to, is to feel the weight of our condition. I think it was R.C. Sproul, the theologian, who I first heard say this. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. The fact that you sinned at some point in your life is not what made you a sinner. You have sinned in your life because you were born a sinner. You were by nature a child of disobedience. As is true of every human being except one whose name is Jesus. 
We were disobedient by choice and by nature. Still further, Paul says, we were depraved in our desires. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Both our body and our mind were depraved. They were ruled by sinful passions. And folks, if you stop to think about this, you will realize that this Truth alone is what seals our doom apart from the grace of God. If our desires, if our passions, if our wants are ruled by sin, then there's no hope for us. Because if our desires are ungodly, we will never choose anything but ungodliness. What we desire determines what we decide. What we want is what decides what we choose. I mean, let me just explain that to you. Um, it's important because this is all part of seeing the backdrop. Um, this week is eating time, right? Is it this week? It is this week, right? Yeah. And so, <laughs> uh, preach it, right? Preach it. All right. All right. All right, so uh, you give me two choices on Thursday. Choice number one, perfectly roasted turkey, moist and tender. Mashed potatoes oozing with butter. Fresh green peas with those little onions in them. Also swimming in butter. Um, nice hot homemade from scratch rolls, also bathed in butter. <laughs> and then Galen's homemade pumpkin pie at the end. That's one option. And then the other option, chopped liver, turnips, mushrooms, with a healthy dose of tapioca pudding at the end. <laughs> Which one do you think I'm choosing? I am ruled by my desires. I'm telling you, not once in 10 million years do I choose chopped liver, tapioca, and turnips, and mushrooms. Now, if on the other hand you tell me that somehow or other mushrooms and tapioca and turnips and whatever else I said if you boil it all down and turn it into a capsule of some sort that cures cancer, and I have cancer, which, I, by the way, I think is the only real created purpose for mushrooms. It's, it's supposed to be medicine, I think. Uh, but if, if, if you tell me that I have cancer and those things all boiled down and turned into something will cure my cancer, then, then I'll take them. Because then my desire to live will be stronger than my desire for my taste buds to be happy. We are always ruled by what we desire the most. And so, friends, Paul says that prior to conversion, we were dead in sin. We were disobedient by choice and by nature. 
and we were depraved in our desires. And the end result of this, the conclusion of this, is that we were doomed, doomed to God's wrath. Do you see it? Verse, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Being dead in sin, being, being duped by the world, being demonized by hell, being disobedient by nature and depraved in our desires, we were doomed, we were condemned to the wrath of God. Folks, this, this wrath of God is not the arbitrary wrath, it's not the vitriolic, volcanic, inconsistent, erratic, fearful, self-centered wrath that you and I exhibit. We are talking a holy wrath. We are talking a just wrath. We are talking a wrath that is always measured and always proportionate and always fair and always controlled and always even and just. God never is angry in an unjust way and he never punishes in an unfair way. Every display of God's wrath in time and eternity will be perfectly, precisely fair. Everyone will get exactly what they deserve. Exactly what they deserve. But it is wrath. And it is anger. And it is holy. Jerry Bridges writes, God's wrath arises from his intense, settled hatred of all sin. It is the tangible expression of his inflexible determination to punish it. We might say God's wrath is his justice in action, rendering to everyone his just due which because of our sin is always judgment. This is the condition, this is the status of every single person who does not know Jesus Christ. That is the wrath that was our doom before Christ came into our lives. There's something, when I speak on such things, I I try to think, okay, how, how... how would the world hear this message or how would a person who's perhaps a skeptic or perhaps a doubter, perhaps just not a believer, how does, how does this land on, on their ears? And, and what I thought this week was that there, there may well be people here today who would think, Tim, why all the negativity? Why, why, why go there? It's not that bad, is it? I mean, aren't people better than that? Well, let's... Let's be honest and let's be thankful that because we're all made in the image of God, there is some goodness that shines through and there is some nobility and there is some decency, even in the worst of human beings. We're not all as bad as we could be because the image of God is still in us and God restrains us by his, by his grace. But, but folks, let's be honest too. Let's be bluntly honest. By and large, we as human beings, if left to ourselves with no threat of punishment or consequences, uh, we'd be a lot worse than we are. You know, why, why? Let me just ask the question. Is your behavior different when you're alone than when you're with others? 
Or is it at least easier to behave badly when you're alone than with others? Why? Well, because there aren't the same consequences. Why is it that there are GPS apps that let you know when there's a police car up ahead? Because most of us will go as fast as we can get away with. We as human beings typically are not governed by character, we're governed by consequences. And when the consequences are removed, the character becomes more and more depraved. Why did white America enslave African men, women, and children? Why? Because it was accepted. They could get away with it without fear of consequences. Why is it that humans of every color have enslaved other humans at some point or other in history? For the same reason. They could get away with it. Why does a young radical Muslim blow himself or herself up and kill hundreds in the process? Is it because they are worse sinners than we are? No, no. No, it is because they are sinners like us who happen to live in circumstances and places where those actions are approved. Why did Nazi Germany turn out so many moral monsters? Was it because the Germans were any worse than other ethnicities or cultures? No. It's because there was a season in which moral barbarity was condoned and approved and accepted and unpunished. Adolf Eichmann was a major force in the atrocities of Nazi Germany. He was responsible for the deaths of millions of people. Was he insane? There's a woman at the Eichmann's trial named Martha Gellhorn, the eyewitness at the trial. I saw these, read these words this week. I said, well, what a word to us. Here's what she wrote. In the bulletproof glass dock sits a little man. He changes his glasses frequently for no explicable reason. He tightens his narrow mouth, purses it, Sometimes there is a slight tick under his left eye. He runs his tongue around his teeth. He seems to suck his gums. The only sound ever heard from his glass cage is when, with a large white handkerchief, he blows his nose. People coming fresh to this courtroom stare at him. We have all stared. From time to time, we stare again. We, we are trying in vain to answer the same question. How is it possible? He looks like a human being, which is to say he is formed as other men. He breathes, eats, sleeps, reads, hears, and sees. What goes on inside him? We fear him because we know that he is sane. It would be a great comfort to us if he were insane. We could then dismiss him with horror, no doubt, but reassuring ourselves that he is not like us, his machinery went criminally wrong. Our machinery is in good order, but there is no comfort. This is a sane man 
And a sane man is capable of unrepentant, unlimited, planned evil. We consider this man and everything he stands for with justified fear. We belong to the same species. Is the human race capable at any time, anywhere to spew up others like him? Why not? Adolf Eichmann is the most dire warning to us all. Oh, friends, what's she saying? She's saying that Eichmann is us. We are him. There is an embryonic Eichmann in the womb of every human heart. And in the wrong set of circumstances, without adequate consequences, this is what we become. This is what we become. I feel, like, I feel like a doctor today having to tell patients some terrible news. But it has to be done. If we don't understand our condition, we will not see our own potential for evil. Nor will we see our need for redemption. Nor will we glory in the redemption once we've gotten it. The backdrop is in place now, folks. It is... It is Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. It is dark. It is bleak. It is brutally honest. Now follow me as we move from this desperate need for new life to the divine motive and action in our new life. I'm going to read beginning in verse 1 again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, contrast, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. There's the contrast. The backdrop is in place, and now the light has been turned on. And the heart and the face of God is seen in its, its full glory. Our new life in Christ is traced to the hand of God and to the power of God, but even more deeply to the heart of God, to a heart that is rich in mercy, that is full of grace, that is abounding in great love. Why, Christian, here this morning, why did God make you alive? Because of His great love. Because of His immense Love, this is, this is the plain truth, but it, it beggars our faith and overwhelms our sense of possibility, but it's real. Christian friend, even though we're dead in sin, even though we're depraved, even though we're disobedient by nature and by choice, even though we were doomed to the wrath of God, God, because of his great love, because of his fantastic love, because of his extraordinary love, because of his out of this world kind of love, he has made us alive in Jesus Christ. How do we, how do we express this? How do, we, how do we grasp this? How do we put this to words? 
Great is the love. It's a, it's a love that started in eternity before time began. Great is his love. Folks, this is a love that, that looked all the way in to our hearts. It was a love that looked all the way down into the darkest resources, the most perverse, depraved nooks and crannies of our heart. He saw it all and was not disgusted to the point of horror and turning away. He has seen everything about you. You are verses one through three. You were, if you're a Christian. I was, oh, I remember being verses one through three. I remember it clear. I knew I wanted nothing to do with God. I was dead in my sin. I loved sin. I hated God. I wanted God out of the picture of my life. I was running as fast as I could in the opposite direction of God. God saw it all. God saw all I was capable of. God saw all that I would have done apart from his restraining and saving grace. God looked down into the crevices of my soul and there was nothing but junk there. But because of his great love, he made me alive. Great, great is his love. A love that is full, full of affection, full of care. A love that forgives and washes and heals and restores. A love that chooses and redeems and regenerates. It makes us alive. And it indwells us and empowers us and enlarges us and exalts us. It's a love that has made us alive in Jesus. And, and not just alive. Notice third, the present glory or status, whatever word you want, status, glory of our new life. God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God, by an almighty act of his power, raised us up with Jesus. We were dead in sin. Remember chapter 1? Paul says, I want you to know the immeasurable great power that is at work in you. What is that power? It's the power that raised up Jesus and seated him at his right hand. And now in chapter 2, he says, that's the power that has raised you up and seated you with Christ, in Christ, at the Father's right hand. This is, notice it, it's past tense. It's something in one sense, already done. It's as good as done. It's a fact accomplished. Because you have come to faith in Christ, you are united to Christ. Being in Christ, it means that wherever he is, you are. And so when he was on the cross, you died in him. Your sins were punished in him. When he was in the grave, your sins were buried in him. When he rose from the dead, you were raised in him. When he ascended up into heaven, you ascended in him. When he was seated at the right hand of the Father on high, you were seated in him. He reigns now and will reign until every enemy has made his footstool. You reign in him. And when he comes back, you will come back 
in him. And when he lives forever in heaven, you will live forever in him in heaven. He is, you are risen and you are seated in Christ in the heavenly places. This is what God has done. Hasn't just made us alive. That's glorious to be alive after being dead. But it's even better to be seated at the right hand of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is, this is our present glory. There was this desperate need. We were dead. And all that that meant, there was this divine motive. Because of his great love, he made us alive. And there is this present status in glory, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. From dust to glory, back to the dust, up to glory. Hebrews says that he is leading many sons, many children to glory. And the day is going to come when the angels bow before him. And because we are in him, the angels will bow to us. We are going to sit on the throne with Jesus. There was the first Adam in whom we all died. There is the second Adam, he who is the head of the church, he who represents us and stands with us and for us in glory, Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Oh, how glorious is this. To live well, we need to know that we are alive. He has made us alive. We need to know how we are alive. It is by his great power. We need to know why we are alive. It is because of his great love and for his great glory. We need to know where we are alive. In Christ. In the heavenly places. Christian, you are not what you once were. You were not what you once were. You were dead. Now you are alive. You were earthbound and earth controlled. But now you're seated in the heavenly places. Paul's words to the Colossians fit well. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's not a psychological pep talk. This is the truth. This is the truth. You are not now what you once were. Because of his great love, the dominion of sin is broken. The demons of hell cannot control you. You are no longer depraved in all your desires. You are no longer doomed to the wrath of God. You are no longer those who are by nature merely children of disobedience. You have been born again and are now children of God, children of obedience, children who love Jesus. This is what God has done. Let us us live in the good of it. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. 
No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Christian, claim your crown. Claim your crown. You were dead. You are now alive because of Christ. I'm going to ask if Leo and Missy would come forward.